everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. I was at this show we're about to talk about, so okay. Okay. I remember it well. I was very excited to be there, so uh, we'll talk about my thoughts about it a little bit later, but uh, this is definitely going to be a unique one for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, for our new listeners, Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we will be discussing Strike Force Los Angeles, which took place on June 16, 2010, at the Nokia Theater in, you guessed it, Los Angeles, California. Uh, in the main event, Ruthless Robbie Lawler would tangle with Babalu Sobral in a catchweight bout. In the co main event, Cyborg Santos would battle Dream Welterweight Champion Mary Saramskis. Also in the card would be Tim Kennedy versus Trevor Prangley and KJ Noons versus Connor Hewn. Pretty short card. There was only six cards or six, uh, excuse me, six fights on the entire card, uh, including two under undercard bouts. But uh, you know, so, some pretty good fights. I, I enjoyed this. Hey Phil, let me interrupt a little bit earlier today than normally. I just wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit. It's curious because for me, the theme of this show is. The fact that, well, it's at the Nokia Theater and it's a smaller setup. It's a different sort of staging area. So I did a little research and looked up the Wrestling Observer and I looked at what Dave Meltzer wrote at this time. And it's interesting, in his writing, he called it a challenger show. So I, I don't know if initially that was sort of how it was going to be marketed and framed and then they decided to sort of get rid of that or not or Maybe Meltzer's wrong. I guess that has happened from time to time. I don't know. Well, but I, it's... I, I, can t I can tell you for a fact he was wrong because when Scott Coker announced this event, he said that it was going to be a mix of main card fighters and challenger standouts. But he made it clear like this was, you know, a, a, a real event, so to speak. This was not a challenger's event. So, uh, yeah, it, Meltzer's incorrect on that. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of read a little bit, though, of what he said. Um, you know, he calls it, well, we know this is incorrect, but this is what he wrote. They had a challenger show on 616 in Los Angeles at the Nokia Theater. Um, and he talks about how it was impressive. Um, you know, uh, it was impressive because they were working in Los Angeles. You know, it's a big market. L.A. really only turns out for the major league events. And then, quote, Meltzer says, it was a quick show with only six matches. I'm not sure if they did a change in presentation because of the unique theater setup or they tried a new concept. It was very old school studio wrestling. Think early 80s Georgia championship wrestling with Gordon Soley and Freddie Miller on Techwood Drive with the announcers at the podium and the live crowd could hear them between falls and do interviews at the podium and I was there live so it was definitely striking it was not at all what I expected before walking into the theater to think oh wow you can actually set up an MMA card this way but just a little context to what this show looked like yeah that's some that's some cool insights and it definitely I wouldn't put it at like Georgia Championship Wrestling level because that's a couple hundred people and this was 5,000 people but being that it was in, in a theater that made the crowd sound a lot louder uh, and it definitely it just definitely seemed more intensive. And, you know, look, this this was this took place during E3, the the uh, basically video game um, event that they do every year. And it's a huge, huge event. 
And I mean, you could see some crossover. I think there'd be probably more crossover today than, than all the way back in 2010. But, um, you know, I think they took kind of a risk for doing something like this, but the, I thought it turned out really well from an optics perspective. You know, the fights were, you know, they, there was nothing earth shattering in the fights or any, no title fights or, you know, really anything like that. But it, I thought it was a, a decent overall card. So let, let's jump into it. I did want to mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreens podcast or the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about the last card strike force event that took place before this heavy artillery uh, that took place in St. Louis in May of 2010 on that card. Fajal Cavalcante had established himself as perhaps the next contender for King Mo's light heavyweight title. And Jacare Souza had possibly li- possibly lined himself up as the next contender for the middleweight belt, which we were waiting to see what was going to happen there because Jake Shields was still the champion. But it was really seem seeming like he was going to sign with the UFC, which obviously would have put the middleweight belt uh, you know, up for grabs. And then in the main event, Alistair Overeem had returned to strike force for the first time in over two and a half years to defend his heavyweight belt. Uh, he had TKO'd Brett Rogers, then said he'd planned to be back soon. However, we would not see him for another year. Leading up to this event, this card would take place only 10 days before Fedor versus Verdun, which marked the closest major strike force card, uh, where basically two strike force cards occurred one after the other. This was the first time that it had taken, a play, taken place this quickly. Um, so very, very interesting. The L.A. card, again, will be set the 2010 Electronic Entertainment Expo, also known as E3, which is a big-time trade event for the video game industry. Pretty unique atmosphere, and it made sense since Strikeforce had partner up, partnered up with EA Sports for the EA MMA video game, and they showed some clips and that sort of thing. Uh, Josh, real quick, so you – because you were at the Fedor card too, right? So you were – in LA, and then ten days later, you were in San Jose for this for for the uh, the Fedor event as well. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I I live in uh, Santa Barbara, so what what that means is about ninety minutes from Los Angeles. And I think what happened, Phil, and you can appreciate this, is that I wasn't actually uh, part of press row for this fight, but Micah Fromowitz had comped me some tickets for oh, the nice. strike force show nice. in, in LA. And, um, I think at this time I was probably still doing fighter profiles. Um, I had interviewed Connor Hewn, KJ Nunes, Tim Kennedy, Trevor Prangley, uh, a lot of the fighters, on this show, um, Hinato Sabral, uh, you know, so he, I, I think that for this, I was just sort of there to sort of like, um, you know, part of our compensation at that time was, you know, go check it out. And so, yeah, it was, it was not a big deal for me to, to go and watch the show. And then, uh, uh San Jose is about four and a half hours away, but what I wanted to go because that was, you know, as we'll talk about it, it was, it was yeah, uh, Fedor Fedor. And I was really looking forward to Fedor winning, but uh, you don't, you know, if you have the opportunity to see Fedor, you know, even, even today, I think if you have an opportunity to see him and you're an MMA fan, you, you take it. So that's yeah. why I was, at no, I don't show, blame so, you. Yeah. I don't blame you. All right. Well, when this event, the LA event that we're discussing, when that was announced in April, the main event was actually supposed to feature uh, Robbie Lawler versus Jason Mayhem Miller. However, after Miller's antics at Strikeforce Nashville that precipitated an in-cage brawl that essentially got Strikeforce kicked off of CBS, he was pulled in favor of So Brawl. Uh, interestingly, despite taking the, the bout taking place at a catch rate of 195 pounds, the winner of Lawler's So Brawl would be given the opportunity to challenge for the title in their respective weight class. So Lawler at the 185-pound uh, weight class and So Brawl at the 205-pound weight class. 
Things were still up in air as I up in the air as I mentioned with middleweight champion Jake Shields. Um, but if he did sign with the UFC, the thought was Scott Coker was saying that Lawler and probably Jacare would likely face off for the vacant belt, though a tournament might happen. But basically, they pulled Mayhem Miller not just because of his antics, but because they were expecting him to be suspended. And they, uh, the way that Coker put it, was like this was not just going to be a slap on the wrist; he's going to be out for quite a while. Ironically, he would end up getting only a three-month suspension, and he was fine with somewhere between five and seven, five thousand and seventy-five hundred, which is about as slap on the wrist as you can get for that. Um, but he wouldn't have been eligible to compete in LA anyway, so it made sense for they, they, they made a good move by pulling him from the event. Another marquee bout on the card that was supposed to showcase Bobby Lashley taking on the very massive Ron Sparks did not happen. Lashley would injure his knee and require surgery, so the bout would be scrapped and replaced with a middleweight bout between rising star Tim Kennedy and the ultra-tough Trevor Prangley. Tim Kennedy was a, a unique addition to this card and someone who could really be a star for Strikeforce. I mean, he'd, been, he'd gone 2-0 and inside the Hexagon on Challengers cards. He had finished both of those fights. And now he had a shot at, at a quote-unquote big show. Kennedy was a, a U.S. Army Special Forces sniper with the 19th Special Forces outfit based in San, uh, San Antonio. He had toured the Middle East several times. He'd earned the Army's bronze medal, uh, bronze medal star for, uh, for Valor under fire. I mean, a true American hero. And, and, I mean, you could really make a case for Kennedy being Strikeforce's next signature 185-pound star. And besides the lightweight division, I mean, I think that's the, the division that they were the strongest in. And, and so this was a real opportunity for him. Uh, K.J. Nunes was supposed to get a chance at revenge against Charles Crazy Horse Bennett on Fedor versus Verdun. Uh, Bennett had handed Nunes his first loss several years prior. However, Crazy Horse would pull out of the fight for undisclosed reasons. So instead, Nunes was matched up with Connor Hewn, and they would compete on the L.A. card. Josh, uh, let me ask you real quick. Are you – have you seen Charles Crazy Horse Bennett fight? Are you familiar with him at all? Um, I, I'm, uh, let me answer this and say that I've read about him and I've heard about him. Um, I, I know that he's got sort of a legendary reputation, but I'm not sure which which incident you're going to refer to here. Well, no, yeah. I was just more. I'm just more asking overall because I don't think he ever got a UFC fight. Um, if you look at his record now, I I, his, I mean it is ridiculous how many fights he's lost. Um, like what, like what type of fight streak he's on, but the dude is just always really, really entertaining. Uh, I really enjoyed watching him in pride because he would like, when I say mug for the camera, like at the beginning, when the ref is going over, um, the, uh, like the rules, he would be like goofing off and like looking at the camera and like making faces and stuff mm. like that. And, and just, I mean, always really, really entertaining, but kind of crazy and, Lots of uh, uh, lo- lots of legal issues. I'm looking at his record now, at least on Wikipedia. His record is 30 and 42. Wow. <laughs> uh, he has not won a fight since September of 2016. He's lost one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve straight fights. Uh, and he just oh, he fought tonight. That's right. He main evented. That's right. As we record this, this is Saturday, June 19th. That's right. Wow. He main evented the uh, bare knuckle MMA oh. event that uh, that gamebred Masvidal, George George Masvidal just put on his oh. first fight as a promoter, and it looks like Jason Knight submitted him in the first round, <laughs> um, which 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 makes sense. He's been submitted in four straight fights dating back to 2018. Uh, he also got into bare knuckle, and he is 0 and three. Uh, one fight each, 2018, 2019, 2020. So he loses a lot, but 
man, he is just always really, really entertaining, extremely athletic. Like he would win and then jump up on the, uh, on the top of the cage and do a, a, basically a standing moonsault off there. And I mean, just extremely game. He's fought some really big names, Takanari Gomi, Uriah Faber, Jeff Kern, Tatsuya Kawajiri, who he lost to all those guys, but he did knock out KJ Nunes in the, in the first round. And so this was going to be an opportunity uh, for, for Nunes to get revenge. But, you know, like I said, uh, Bennett was, was unavailable for whatever reason. So, uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, to get Crazy Horse a win so he can retire, do we book him against CM Punk or, <laughs> Bo- or Bob Sapp? Yeah, I... I would give. I honestly would give him a better chance against Bob Sapp than I would. See him. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I really think uh-huh. I would probably. I because th- all I'd have to do is Sapp is like run around the cage, and eventually Sapp would get tired and just tap <laughs> start, out. So, start crying. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, I, I legit. That's no joke. I think that Punk would have a better chance of beating him. So, which is really sad. Um, but uh, of course, getting back to this. It, it, nearly impossible to bring up KJ Nunes without mentioning Nick Diaz as far as back then. I mean, the two had fought for the elite XC 160 pound belt three years prior in 2010 with Nunes winning by Dr. Stoppage after cutting up Nick's face with strikes. And as you can imagine, Nick Diaz never, neither of the Diaz brothers ever are happy with a fight getting stopped because they're cut, even though they, they cut fairly easily. And Diaz was not happy with the decision. He flipped off pretty much the entire state of Hawaii uh, as he was as he was leaving the cage, and Nunes was asked about rematching Diaz around this time, and he expressed that he was all for it. In fact, I believe he said that he had uh, offered or agreed or something, and then somebody in Nick Diaz's camp had said no. I, I don't know exactly the situation, but they would end up rematching, which we'll get to eventually. All right. So around this time, as far as what was going on in the UFC, uh, same situation, uh, the same champions basically. We had uh, UFC lightweight champion was Frankie Edgar. GSP was the undisputed welterweight champion. Anderson Silva, still the middleweight champ. Uh, and then Mauricio Shogun Hua was, was the champion. And then Brock Lesnar, oh, the light heavyweight champion, and then Brock Lesnar was the undisputed heavyweight champion. The closest UFC event to take place to this card that we're talking about was UFC 115. A historic event for sure, although for, for somewhat of a sad reason. It took place on June 12th, 2010, just a few days before Strike Force Los Angeles. And it was set in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The event was a huge success financially, drawing 17,669 fans for a gate of 4.2 million, as well as a pay-per-view, excuse me, pay-per-view buy rate of 520,000. The main event was originally supposed to feature Chuck Liddell taking on Tito Ortiz for the third time. However, Ortiz would be forced to pull out due to a neck injury that required surgery. So instead, former UFC middleweight champion Rich Franklin would step in to face the Iceman and. Uh, you know, we'll talk about that in just a second. But also on the main card, Carlos Condit would TKO a then 20-year-old Rory McDonald. And Mirko Krokop would secure a very rare submission victory for himself, choking out Pat Barry with a rear naked choke. Uh, and then in the main event, Liddell would suffer a third straight knockout loss as Franklin would punch his lights out. And this would end Liddell's run with the UFC. Uh, he had first fought for them all the way back in 1998. He fought for... A few other promotions uh, early on. He fought a couple times in Pride, although that was as a UFC fighter. And really one of the UFC's true signature stars. I mean, one, one of the guys, I, I don't think I ever saw him in a boring fight. He'll go down in history as one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time. And he was also a bridge from the old school, no rules, NHB days of MMA. And, you know, all the way up to the to the network TV area, uh, network TV era. But, you know, 
the the Ken and Tito fights, Ken Shamrock Tito Ortiz fights from from 2002, and then going into uh, uh, Tito's feud with with Chuck Liddell, and then uh, you know Chuck having some really good fights. I think three fights with Randy Couture. I mean, those were the things that really those were the events that really kept the UFC afloat until the Ultimate Fighter in 2005. And I mean, they were the main stars. They those were the guys that drew, and, and so it was a, it was a big deal. So seeing you know, Chuck go out on three straight knockout losses was, you know, that's not fun, but it's just, that's the way MMA is. That's the name of the game. Yeah. You know, Chuck Lydell, uh, you know, he's from Santa Barbara. He he went to school. That's right. That's right. You know, and he, you know, trained San Luis Obispo. So I just remember back then, of course, you know, anyone who listens knows that I'm, you know, we're both big pro wrestling fans. I'm also a pro wrestling fan, but back around this time, well, not this time, but during the, the Chuck Lydell era, like 2005-ish, 2006, right around there. I mean, these were the household names. They were the Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper of MMA. I mean, this was Chuck Liddell, it was Tito Ortiz. It was these, you know, it was Randy Couture. These were the names that got your casual fan to pay attention. And, and so these guys are, they're groundbreakers for sure. And of course, you know, now the UFC is this billion dollar company, but it started with just, you know, th- those three played a huge part in it, of course. And uh, since you brought up Tito Ortiz, and I don't want to stray too much. We could do our own podcast on Tito Ortiz, but I'm sure you're aware he got elected to the Huntington Beach, California yeah. City yeah. Council, and then he quit. He resigned. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. So it's like, wow, it's just like, you know, just goes to show you. Be a fighter, be a fighter. Don't try to do politics because that world is upside. That's even more upside down than the fight world. <laughs> well, I mean, some would say Tito's more upside down than than anything else. But well, uh, I mean, he's, he's upside he down. Far out. He seems to be pretty far out there. Yeah, he seems to be pretty <laughs> far out there. Even I mean, even for somebody like myself, who I consider I, I consider myself to be kind of a conservative leaning libertarian or libertarian leading conservative or something along those lines, but. Uh, he, he is way far right of me. So well, he <laughs> yeah, filed for, he got in trouble because he filed for unemployment. Yeah, unemployment. Yeah. <laughs> While working yeah. for the city of Huntington yeah. Beach. So kind of, kind of a bad look. Kind of a bad look. <laughs> yeah. But an MMA and UFC icon, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like I said, they, they were the, you said the same thing, but essentially they were the main guys. And, you know, Dana was actually uh, Chuck's manager at one point and Tito's manager at one point. So, um, you know, they've known each other for a long, long time, but it, I'm sure it pained Dana to say in the press conference afterwards that Chuck will never fight in the UFC again, that, you know, that's it. And I really wish he hadn't come back in 2018 for that really lackluster fight against Tito. I th- wish he just stayed retired, but, you know, it's just it, it is what it is, and it's really hard once you get bit by that bug. It's really hard to, to let it go. So, uh, but much, much, much respect to the Iceman Chuck Liddell for everything that he accomplished in the sport of MMA, for sure. All right, well, let's get back to the event. As mentioned earlier, Strike Force Los Angeles would take place on June 16, 2010, at the Nokia Theater in L.A. during the E3 event. 5,259 fans would be in attendance for a gate of $418,000. At this point, Stephen Quadros and Pat Militich would normally join Mauro Ranallo on Challengers cards, while Frank Shamrock and Gus Johnson would work the larger events with Mauro. This time, however, Quadros and Militich would join Ranallo on commentary and once again, Jimmy Lennon Jr. Would, would be the ring announcer. The event drew an estimated 164,000 viewers with a peak of 197,000 on Showtime. couple of things. Apparently, 
Dave Batista from speaking of WWE was, um, I guess out at this point, he was kind of fed up with pro wrestling and he was interested in getting into MMA. And so he met Scott Coker at this show. They, they talked, this is from the wrestling observer. Batista was at the show, Dave Batista or Batista, if you're a wrestling character. Uh, but apparently, uh, what, what, what uh, Dave Meltzer wrote was, he was talking with Strikeforce CEO Scott Coker after the show, but it was just the two guys introducing themselves for the first time. The one thing is, I just don't see him getting the kind of money he would want in MMA because yeah. he's been making in the $2 million per year range. And that's why any kind of leaving other than a sabbatical at his age, he was 41 at the time, doesn't make sense unless he's just sick of it and has saved enough money to where it's not an issue. With the kind of years he's had, the past five or six, he would have saved a big nest egg, but he does live large. He's got a finite number of years left, and he's exceedingly unlikely to be able to come anywhere close to that kind of income doing anything else other than wrestling. That's Dave Meltzer. But it's interesting that Bautista was was thinking about doing MMA for Strike Force. He had floated it out there in interviews, and he actually met Coker at this event and you know batista did do one mma fight i don't even remember the promotion that it was but um, i can was... tell you all about uh -oh. it uh-oh uh-oh were you there phil <laughs> no, no, no 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 <laughs> i know i'm i'm just looking at his wikipedia page yeah. as we're as we're discussing this but uh yeah actually um so i'm looking looking at his wikipedia page he was yeah he quit he did that whole uh angle where he was saying that he was injured which he actually was and uh, Bret Hart was the raw general manager and said that you got to face uh, Randy Orton to qualify for a shot at the WWE championship. And he basically quit instead. And then later said in an interview that he left WWE at that point because he did not like the direction the company was going. And that was in May. And so this event took place in June. So it makes sense that, you know, a couple months later, he's thinking about his next steps. So he did end up having a fight in 2012. I remember I, I had no, you know, I didn't, like I wasn't part of the, you know, working with the promotion or anything like that. I was out of MMA, I believe, at that point. Um, but he worked he worked for a promotion called CES MMA uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, which I think is still around, if I remember correctly. It's the only fight he ever did. He beat, beat a journeyman named Vince Lacero by TKO. Uh, in the first round and basically mounted him. He had his back mount and, and was punching him. And if you watch it, you can YouTube it. And essentially, Lucero did not like something that Batista did when, like, he was on his back. Like, I think he – I don't know. It's like if you watch it, I can't see what he's so upset about, but he was really, really upset about something. And then Batista got really angry and it was not looking good. And then um, there's a picture of him at the uh, – the dais afterwards uh, given, you know, during the press conference afterwards. So that was it. Like the thought, I think that they thought he was going to go, you know, g keep going, but, but that was it. He got his one fight and then he returned. That was in 2012. He returned to, to WWE the next year and had that, the blue Tista, <laughs> boo Tista run. The next year that was not, <laughs> not well received, but I did not know that he had talked with Coker. So that's, that's interesting that, I mean, imagine seeing, uh, 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 seeing Batista versus uh, uh, Bobby Lashley in, oh, in I mean, in Strike Force, I mean, that would have been the place to do that. So that would have been really interesting. So yeah, that would have been probably one round of heavy breathing and Bobby yeah. Lashley on top of it. Bobby until, Lashley taking him down and pounding him out, probably. Yeah, yeah. But 
Yeah, that was, you know, good for Batista for trying it, doing the yeah. walk, and uh, deciding, he you know, he's, four, I guess he would have been 43 at that time. I mean, that's yeah, old yeah. for the MMA. Yeah, Sorry. so, yeah. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely up there. So makes a lot of sense that he would just do that one and make the walk and, and that'd be it. All right, well, let's get to the card itself. Two quick undercard bouts to discuss. 160 pounds, Jeremy Umphreys defeated RJ Clifford via technical submission, come by way of Rune Kachoka, 227 in the second round. RJ Clifford is the name that stands out there in that uh, he ended up going into MMA journalism. I remember pitching him um, when I was uh, when I was a, an MMA publicist. Don't know what he's doing today, if he's still involved with MMA, but yeah, transition from fighter into the journalism side. And then at 135 pounds, Hugo Sandoval defeated Marcus Kowal via TKO, come by way of strikes at 43 seconds of the second round. All right, let's get to the main card. This uh, this is available on UFC Fight Pass, so we were able to see these fights. At 160 pounds, KJ, Noon de- KJ Noons defeated Connor Hewn via split decision. Hewn was 8-2 and two coming in. Uh, he was coming off a year-long layoff as he'd had knee surgery. Before that, he'd lost an entertaining decision to George Gergel, a future opponent of KJ Noons. Uh, he took this fight on 12 days' notice after Noons' original opponent, Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, had dropped out. Noons was also 8-2. and two. He had returned to MMA after a nearly two-year hiatus to win a decision, a decision victory over Andre Amade in Dream in Japan in March of 2010. Uh, interestingly, Noons was actually representing Strike Force in that fight. He had signed with the promotion in 2009, and his appearance in Dream was part of the partnership between the two promotions. Prior to that, Nunes had been the last Elite XC 160-pound champion defending the title successfully against Eve Edwards after besting Nick Diaz for the belt. All right, so let's get to the fight itself. KJ was competing in pro boxing at this time. He'd also been a kickboxer, uh, but he at this time was focusing on both pro boxing and MMA. He wanted to be a champion in both. Hewn was an Eddie Bravo BJJ black belt, which is very impressive because Eddie is one of the best uh, BJJ guys in the world. Very entertaining first is, round. Is, is, is he the same guy that thinks the earth is flat? Yep, that would be that guy. One of uh, Joe Rogan's absolute best friends. Oh, okay. Uh, but he's, yeah, he's one of the, he's an incredible Brazilian jiu-jitsu player. Amazing guy. Wow, so okay. I think his gym is 10th, 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu or something like that. So I've uh, only seen him talking about aliens. And yeah, he's, he's definitely stuff. a weird guy. Likes to get high. <laughs> he's an out there guy for sure. Uh, but but he knows what he's doing when it comes to jiu-jitsu, uh, to jiu-jitsu. So to get your BJJ black belt from him, you've got to be really, really good. So I, I assume even though Hewn didn't really show it in this this fight too much because he wanted to stand and bang, apparently. Uh, but he, apparently he's got to be really good on the ground. So very entertaining first round. Both fighters land some good strikes. They got right into it. No feeling out process to this one at all. With about two minutes left, Hewn landed a really nice takedown. Nunes tried to stand up, but Hewn dragged him back down. Hewn also got... Uh, the, the figure four body lock on for a while, and he was really squeezing Noons. And something interesting happened there, which we'll talk about in just a bit. Really tough round to call, especially with Noons dropping Hewn at the buzzer with a shot. But with the, the shot that he landed, um, plus the takedown and all the work that – or, yeah, I'm sorry, with some of the shots that he landed and, and the takedown and all the work to put it on the ground, I, I gave it to the first round to Hewn 10-9. Great second round, which took place almost solely on the feet. Noons clearly hurt Hewn midway through the round with a solid right hand, but to Hewn's credit, he not only hung in there, he started to throw back with power, and at the very end of the round, Hewn landed a nice takedown, but I would still give it to Noons, 10-9. And in the third round, Hewn's face was was cut up pretty bad. He started going for takedowns more often, but Noons was able to stuff most of them. Hewn was hurt and tired, and Noons was picking him apart. But what a battle this was. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think Noons was the better fighter and took at least 
two of the three rounds. Big round of applause for both fighters when they were done. The crowd seemed really, really into it. Like I said, them being so close together seemed to make it louder in there. Uh, but Noon's got a split decision victory. Somehow, some way, some one of the judges scored this 30 to 27 for Hewn. I don't know what fight that guy was watching. I could see it maybe 29, 28 for Hewn if like one of the judges did that. But the other two judges scored it, uh, I think 29, 28 for um, uh, for for Noons, and one guy gave it 30 to 27 for Hewn, which is just insane. Maybe that judge scored the Rory McDonald PFL fight. Yeah, ah, yeah, the Glayson Tebow <laughs> Rory McDonald fight. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I, I had the fight 29 28 for Noons. And I think uh, Connor Hewn won the first round, and then Noons uh, just was better the, the final two. Um, I really liked this fight. I thought it was a great fight. Noons is such a good offensive boxer. I mean, by offensive, I mean he's such a good striker. And, uh, you know, he's got slick jab, nice right hand, great counter punches. He's really comfortable in there. And he's one of the fighters that I really enjoyed watching. I wish he had fought more. I wish he had a longer career. I wish he had a greater stage in either Strikeforce or the UFC. Because he very much is like a Josh Thompson kind of guy. He just like looked like he had fun in there. And he, he uh, just was very comfortable. He's very relaxed. And he was always sort of just... Um, you know, just like I guess he had that kind of Hawaiian mentality where he was appreciative of, of the moment. On the other hand, I really like Connor Hoon too. You know, he he was a good fighter. He really, I thought he stretched Noons in that first round. You know, he I don't know that he was close to getting a submission, but he definitely was putting a lot of pressure on him, and uh, he was making Connor or making uh, KJ work, no doubt. Um, so I, I mean, he looked good. I, I thought I thought he he fought a great fight here, and I don't think he won, but it was really close. Obviously, the fact that Connor had the crimson mask that blood that never plays well in your favor. Um, it tells the judges whether it's you know subconscious or subliminally that hey, this guy's losing the fight. This guy's getting beat up. KJ doesn't have that much blood all over his face. So you know, Nunes did more damage with his striking. Very Nick Diaz like, but probably you know, in my opinion, a better boxer than Nick Diaz. He doesn't slap as much. I think he actually you know puts a little more power in his punches. Um, but I like both of these fighters, and um, you know, I, like I said, I wish wish Nunes would have had a longer career on a grander stage because I, I really enjoyed watching him fight. Well, you know, he did. I mean, he got a, a long run with Strikeforce, and then he had a five or six fight run with UFC, which I had forgotten about. But Nunes did get a run. In the UFC, just he always seemed at this point in his career to lose when it was, you know, the elite guys. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, he was matched up with Josh Thompson at one one point, I, I believe. And I, I don't think the fight happened, but I would have loved to have seen that. Uh, you know, I would have, uh, yeah, I would have, li- I really enjoyed watching Nunes. I mean, it was just seemed to be impossible for him to be in a boring fight. And, and Hune definitely impressed me too. I really enjoyed this fight. I think it was probably the best fight on this card. Um, and, and yeah, I enjoyed it. But, if you enjoyed KJ Noons, I want to let you know that next week I'm interviewing him. Uh, we actually have already recorded it, but he told me it was his first interview since his last fight in 2016, which is really crazy. His first interview in five years. Uh, and during my chat with him, he said that the first round figure four body lock that Hune had put on him here popped out a rib. And to this day, it still sticks out. And in fact, he, this is a Hawaiian saying this, he can't surf because of that that rib sticking out which is just insane so on in during the interview he's like so thanks connor for basically keeping me from ever surfing again which is just crazy so uh make sure you turn it tune in next week you're not going to want to miss that interview we talk about his 
his two fights with Nick Diaz, his run with Strike Force, and just what he's up to today. He's a fireman, uh, fireman today, and and it was, it was a great chat. So make sure you check that out. Uh, but Nunes will be back in Strike Force just a couple of months later, while Hewn would return in 2011. All right, next bout, 185 pounds. Tim Kennedy defeated Trevor Prangley via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 335 of the first round. Prangley, 22 and 5, was coming off an unfortunate draw with Carl Amusu after an accidental thumb to his opponent's eye had ended the bout prematurely. Prior to that, the South African strongman had won five straight bouts, including his last scrap in Strike Force, which had been a win over Anthony Ruiz at Strike Force at the Playboy Mansion 2, which I believe was in 2008. So this was his first time back with the promotion. In over a year and a half, Kennedy was 11 and two and had a win over Mayhem Miller early in his career. He had competed several times in the IFL, winning their middleweight title before before joining Strike Force in 2009. He'd finished Nick Thompson with punches on the second challengers card and then had submitted Zach Cummings at the third challengers event. Now he had a chance to make it three straight in Strike Force and set himself up as a contender for the middleweight crown. Uh, getting into the fight itself. The two clinched almost immediately with Prangley landing a very, very nice wizard kind of hip trip takedown. Kennedy was able to stand back up, but Prangley took him back down again. However, Kennedy reversed course and got back up, then landed a lift and drop takedown of his own. And this would be the proved to be the beginning of the end as Kennedy started working the mat, improving his position. Uh, Prangley started to stand up with Kennedy on his back, but Kennedy apparently snuck in a rear naked choke and Prangley apparently tapped. It was really hard to see from the live camera angle, so it was a little bit anticlimactic, but uh, when they show the replay, you could see it a lot clearer. Very, very nice win for Tim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy, what a great fighter. I think he was underrated, and I think that the UFC missed a big opportunity in how they marketed him. As you had mentioned earlier, you know, he had this decorated military career. He, he was a sniper. Uh, he never really talked too much about his kills. I guess they, they don't. They're not supposed to, but he was a high-level Army Ranger sniper. He's probably still doing doing that. Um, you know, he had this incredible body, just this amazing story for them to tell. Um, and he was, he was also a really good grappler. He was strong, and he had a really good sort of fight personality. It was very marketable. He had a little bit of Conor McGregor in him in terms of his attitude. Obviously, to not to that degree, but Kennedy was kind of a jerk, okay? He was definitely very much a guy who was arrogant. He liked to stay in charge. He, he liked to uh, be the one who uh, was setting the tone, and he promoted fights really well. So, I mean, I, I thought he was going to have a long career as a champion, uh, he did end up fighting Lee Rockhold. He did end up, you know, in the UFC. Probably his biggest challenge in my, you know, in my uh, assessment was he was overly technical at times. He was too comfortable sort of winning fights on decisions and being the better athlete. He didn't face a lot of guys who were better athletes than him. He was a much better athlete. Uh, but I think he kind of had a bad ending there to his career. I don't know, Phil, if you remember the... Yoel Romero fight. This isn't the Tim Kennedy podcast, but, um, you know, he, he got a bad break where he thought he knocked Romero out and then yeah. Romero got some extra time. And then, you know, you're the, the adrenaline of thinking you won and all of a sudden you didn't, or you think you're about to win and then you get knocked out. I mean, that was heartbreaking, uh, for, for him, but I always liked Tim Kennedy, you know, notwithstanding his, his extraordinarily conservative viewpoints. This is fighting. I don't really care about any of that stuff. This guy was a fighter, and I enjoyed fight, watching him fight. 
Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of his um, as a as a, both a fighter and as a personality. Yeah. Um, my you know my political viewpoints uh, probably match up more with his than yours too, but um, I, I I think he's great. I would highly recommend anybody to go listen to his last interview uh, with Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan podcast. I it was very inspirational as far as taking care of your body and you know just just going after it. I mean, it was uh, you know I know there's a lot out there about you know, toxic masculinity and, and that sort of thing. But there's just something about the way that he lives his life. That's just very, uh, again, inspirational that, you know, just get after it and uh, get it, spending time in nature and, and all that stuff. And he just seems to really have it together. In fact, I emailed him about coming on this show and he agreed to come on. So we're, we're planning to have him on in the future. And after I heard him on Rogan's podcast, I emailed him and just said, Hey, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I asked him, I think I asked him if there's any books he would recommend and, uh, he gave me a couple, you know, a couple, uh, yeah, yeah, he did. He gave me a, um, a suggestion on that. So really good guy to me. He's always been really good. And, and I really, really enjoy, uh, watch both watching him fight and, and hearing him talk. And, uh, you know, he, he, the Romero thing, I remember watching that. It's just like, man, he really got the short end of the stick there. That was just really unfortunate, but, uh, well, well, Phil at the risk of offending all of your woke progressive constituents, Tim Kennedy is a man. He is I mean, a man. <laughs> he is a man. Yeah. Like he, he is everything that if you strive to be manly, you want to be like him. And I, I mean, there's a lot of fighters and there's a lot of great fighters, but what this guy does in the military and, you know, obviously his conditioning. I mean, this, he's a, he's, there's no doubt he's a role model. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, this is a guy, uh, he's masculine without being trying to be. You know, he just, he's, he's, he's a real man and yeah, he's seen and done things that the vast majority of the population will never see or do. And, and I just, I give him a lot of credit for, I'm sure he has his struggles, but just having the, you know, uh, the type of viewpoint that he has and, and, you know, just knowing who he is, I, he's very inspirational to me. So um, I, I'm a big fan of his and I don't care what, <laughs> I don't care what people think. But anyways, back to the fight itself. Prangley would be back in Strikeforce in 2011. Kennedy now has this three-fight win streak in Strikeforce. He does get a crack at the vacant Strikeforce middleweight title a couple months after this, matching up with Jacare Souza, and I can't wait to cover that event. All right, we're at the co-main event, 170 pounds. Evangelista Cyborg Santos defeated Marius Zoromskis via TKO, coming by way of head kick and punches at 238 of the first round. Zoromskis was the dream welterweight champion, held a record of 14-4 coming in. He had lost via TKO to Strikeforce welterweight champion Nick Diaz in January on the uh, their Miami event, but he had won five straight before that loss. Cyborg, not, not really an impressive record, 17-13, but he was coming off a win. Uh, despite, however, that was his only win in the last three bouts, which included a split decision loss to Joey V. Senor on a Strike Force Challengers card. All right, this is a quick one. Heavy shots from both fighters early on, with Cyborg landing a solid left hook that staggered Zoromsky's. Uh, Cyborg was really landing some, some counter leg kicks, really solid stuff. And Cyborg then lands a right high kick, then clips uh, Zoromsky's with another left. Then, then comes a very scintillating finish as Zoromsky's clearly rocked flies in with this flying knee and cyborg tried to time a left hook that missed, but then landed a straight right follow-up that just, I mean, landed flush and put Zoromsky's down for good, followed up with a couple shots in the mouth, Matt, but what a great finish. And I really, I mean, cyborg looked great in this fight to me. We will probably disagree on this, but I did not like that ending, but I don't think it's because 
it, the fight should have gone longer. I think it was probably because I hated the camera angle. And it was kind of a theme of at least a couple of fights. Yeah. We saw it here. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and then we saw it with Trevor Prangley. Yeah. Prangley collapsed, and we didn't see until the replay. He actually tapped out on the right-hand side, so it sort right. of looked like what happened there. And this one, um, he clearly uh, you know, went for a knee, and then Cyborg caught him, and he was out. And then, I, but you didn't see the punch. You just kind of saw, yeah. you know, you just, yep. Z- Zeromoski's, you saw him just kind of fall. So you're like, it almost could have been a slip because he had this leaning in with the knee. It was kind of awkward. So I don't know. I, I felt in real time, I'm like, oh, they stopped that too early. This guy could have maybe gotten, you know, scrambled, gotten up or something. But it might have been just the, the camera angle. Um, it was tough to see how bad the punch really uh connected um he was hurt it probably would have ended but i don't know i just i felt like i just you know there was a great finish there that i didn't fully see that's my problem with that fight yeah no i that's legit and and you're exactly right the the kennedy prangley one it was like well he must have just the way their body their bodies were it the only thing it could have been pretty much was you know, either a neck crank or, or a rear naked choke, and you didn't see the tap. So I was like, wait, did he tap? I mean, he Prangley definitely did not protest in any way. I mean, he went down face first and was clearly, you know, in pain or recovering or whatever. So, but it was, it was definitely anticlimactic, like I said. And this is similar. I thought for sure that he had landed this perfectly timed left hand. And I was, but then I was like, but he didn't, Zoromsky seemed to not react right away. So I thought, I thought maybe their heads had clashed and, and so it was kind of weird. And then I written out as like perfectly timed left hand. And then I, they showed the replay and I had to change what I wrote. Cause it wasn't, he missed on the left hand, but then in a follow follow up straight, right. That landed right on Zoromsky's chin and knocked him backwards. And then a couple shots and that was it. But yeah, I, I agree. It does make it a little less impressive i was really impressed i don't know if you noticed but cyborg's wife at that time was chris cyborg and Cy- chris picked him up and spun him around in the cage yeah. which kind of made me laugh um yeah i don't yeah, know if she was I, juice juicing at that point or not <laughs> i would have picked her for sure if they ever fought in her gender but. oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah no question but uh, Zeromsky's will be back for a challenger's card later in the year, but that would be it for him in strike force. Uh, he's 40 years old today as we record this and actually still competing. He won a fight this past November to bring his record to 22 and nine cyborg would earn a shot at Nick Diaz's welterweight title as a result of his win here, which would take place, uh, but not for a while, six months later, January of 2011. All right, here we go. Main event time catch weight bout of 195 pounds. Hinato Babalu Sobral defeated Robbie Lawler via unanimous decision. Former Strikeforce light heavyweight champion Babalu is 35-8, and eight, coming in with 18 submissions and 5 KOs. He hadn't competed in 10 months, losing his Strikeforce light heavyweight title to Gegard Musassi the previous August. Prior to that bout, he'd won five straight. Lawler, for his part, was 17-5 and five with 14 knockouts and one submission. He was coming off an incredible win over Man- Melvin Manhoff earlier in the year in a fight where Ruthless had landed only two punches but they were the only ones that he needed as he turned the Dutch kickboxers' lights out in violent fashion at the end of the bout. It was uh, during the first round. Before that, he had tapped out to Jake Shields in a disappointing fight for ruthless Robbie Lawler. Uh, he had his usual camp in Iowa. To, uh, had, I'm sorry, Lawler had actually left his usual camp in Iowa in Bettendorf to train with Aaron Simpson, Ryan Bader, and several other high-level fighters 
uh, to prep for this fight. It was not a permanent move, but the, but one that Lawler said he enjoyed and would be happy to go back to again. All right. Being this was E3, a big-time video game conference, it made sense for Strikeforce to show some footage from the EA Sports MMA video game, which they did before this bout. Once the bell rang, the two clinched early on. About halfway through, Lawler landed a left hand that appeared to cut Babalu under the eye. Babalu answered with a nice takedown, but Lawler got up right away. Babalu landed a nice leg kick that, that had to remind Lawler of tearing knee cartilage uh, against Melvin Manhof, uh, during getting those brutal – oh, man, those leg kicks were just brutal in that Manhof fight. And when I saw Babalu throw one that uh, Lawler kicked his leg out, you know, kind of in trying to cushion and take the, the kick, it just reminded me of that. It had to have reminded him of that. Very tough round to call, but I'd probably lean towards Babalu 10-9. Interestingly, they interviewed Strikeforce light heavyweight champion King Mo during the break between the first and second rounds, and he was asked who he was pulling for, and he said Babalu, uh, but interesting, as he was a, a friend and training partner, but if Babalu won, he'd have the right to face King Mo for the belt. So that that's kind of, you know, well, you're pulling for the guy that, you you know, is your buddy, of course, but then you might have to face him. Uh, in the second, Lawler seemed really intent on pushing the pace, and he was stalking Babalu, landed some nice shots. Babalu tried for a takedown, but Lawler stayed on his feet throwing strikes while Babalu had his leg in his hand, which was, you know, basically hopping up and down one foot. However, Babalu started responding, and Lawler seemed to be tiring, perhaps. I mean, he did that thing where he tried to act like he was hurt. Josh, you've talked about this in the past. He was trying to draw Babalu in, but the Brazilian did not bite, and uh, and the commentators, especially Pat Militich, called it out on uh, – on commentary, in fact, I believe Pat said that he had made he'd been in a movie with Robbie, Robbie, uh, you know, a couple of years prior, and said he wasn't that good of an actor. So, uh, and it showed there. But you know, it was weird watching Robbie. I mean, it just he started to hang back. I don't know if he was being hurt by Bobalu strikes, but Ruthless just completely took his foot off the gas, and he seemed to be waiting for Bobalu to do something so he could counter. Meanwhile, Bobalu just pouring it on, and crowds responding, chanting his name. And, and keep in mind. Babalu owns and operates a gym in the area, so he was the local favorite. I'd probably give the second round to to Babalu once again, 10-9. But Robbie just seemed incapable of stringing together some combinations. It just seemed like he wasn't, I don't say he wasn't mentally there, but it was he just seemed to have trouble putting it together mentally in the fight. And this is kind of the, you know, look, he's a great fighter, a former UFC champion, but I, I really think this is what keeps him from being named amongst the greatest 185 pounders of all time was just, I feel like the mental side of it was never, wasn't, wasn't always a strong suit for him. I mean, obviously tons of killer instinct and tons of, uh, of heart and all that stuff, but, and obviously very skilled, but he just, I, I feel like the mental part of the game just escaped him sometimes. And, and I think that was on full display in this fight. Uh, but then in the third and final round, Though his face was showing almost all of the damage that was inflicted, Babalu continued to press the action. You could see some very deep bruising on Robbie Lawler's left side. and it, I mean, it looked bad. Babalu's body kicks had clearly landed where he wanted them to, and Babalu was out striking the, slike, the slugger, no question. Lawler was just never, never able to land the big shot that he needed at the end. Uh, he was pressing, he was going for it, but Babalu kept him at bay long enough to get the, to the final bell and clearly secured the decision victory in the process. You know, it was a it was a decent, entertaining fight. I, I would have liked to have seen something more decisive, of course. Uh, but you know, it, it was it was a good fight. The two embraced immediately afterwards, and uh, you know, it, it was interesting that Quadros tallied the fight for Babalu, while Militich actually thought Lawler won. But in the end, the judges saw it as unanimous decision victory for Babalu, and I had to agree. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about what you brought up with with Robbie Lawler. This was definitely the bad version 
of Robbie Lawler. And, and I think that's what you're getting at when you're talking about sort of his legacy was Robbie Lawler looked amazing in some fights, particularly after he returned to the UFC. And I think he might have switched camps and he got more in, in, in touch with his power. And he really, you know, since it's the man show, he, he manned up, you know, he really became more aggressive and more of a knockout artist. But there's so many of these fights in Robbie's career where you're just sort of waiting for him to do something and then he never did it. And I think that's part of the challenge. So I don't know if that's a, a mental lapse. Uh, if it's, you know, some athletes are so uh, used to winning, the, you know, they could only fight their way. And when they don't get their way, they quit. Uh, not, not like tap out quit, but they just stop fighting or they give up or they just end up looking for one thing to win. Yeah, they can't, or they can't, they, they don't have the ability to change it up and do something else in, in the fight, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, they're not versatile enough. And that was sort of Robbie's thing was Robbie looked like one of the best 185 pounders in the world at times. But, yeah. you know, there were other, what was it? The, was it the Hendricks fights that, you know, he had that? Or there's a Stephen Thompson. I mean, these were fights, you know, like, you know, in the UFC, he looked incredible. But uh, then he would struggle with a guy like Bobaloo, who fairly certain nine times out of 10, he would knock him into next week if he actually fought him, you know? So, you know, in this fight, it was, it was the version of Robbie Lawler that he really could not, um, he really couldn't compete with Sabral. He couldn't work with his movement. And, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe having a different camp really didn't, or different training partners. Maybe that didn't work. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was definitely not his best showing. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> But they interviewed Babalu afterwards. He said that instead of King Mo, he wanted Dan Henderson in a rematch from about 11 years prior. Um, we would end up seeing that later in the year, uh, which was kind of an interesting. He basically said, you know, he's my friend, and I'm talking about Mo, and so I'm not going to take the title shot, so I'm going to go after a guy that I lost to 11 years ago. I thought that was kind of interesting. I love King Mo, but if you have the option of fighting Dan Henderson and or King Mo in 2010 – King Mo. Yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, I I I just it's hard for me to agree with uh the idea that that Babalu's not gonna take just the title shot. You know, it's more money and chance to be the first two time champion and you know, yeah, I just I don't I don't agree with that. Um but you know, I'm not a fighter, so it's I guess it's easy for me to to say that. But Well look well, I mean look at Daniel Cormier and Kay Velasquez, right? You know, it's like yeah. Some of these guys will never fight. King Mo would have been down. He's a pro wrestling fan. He's done. He's seen plenty of brother versus brother angles. You know. So. Yeah, I think I don't think Mo would have <laughs> had an issue with it. I really don't. But, uh, but anyways, but both Lawler and Bobalu would be back later in the year on a the same card. Actually, the December card for Strike Force would be memorable for both of them, but for very different reasons. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But that uh, that wraps up the event. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the fight. Josh, I know that you're going to have something to say about the payroll because you always do. But uh, total uh, again, gate was four hundred eighteen thousand, and that was actually the disclosed fighter payroll. Um, so whether you like it or not, it seems like they gave every dime of the gate to the fighters. Uh, but Babalu got a hundred thousand, while Lawler got eighty-five thousand. Cyborg got ten thousand. Zaramsi's got five thousand. Kennedy and Prangley both took home thirty thousand. Noons earned twenty five thousand, while Hewn got four thousand, and I don't have the numbers for the undercard fighters. 
That's a tragedy that Connor Hewn got four thousand. I can only hope yeah. that that he got some other kind of money. He, he did say he was a replacement in this fight, right? But yeah, yeah, I mean, he took it, it on short notice. I almost feel like he should get more for being, yeah. you know, in a replacement. I mean, I mean, four grand. There are mechanics working across the street from LA Live and the Nokia Theater that are making, you know, more than that, you know, in a month. I can't believe that. That's all that that they could pay for risking risking their lives. It's just an odd payroll for sure. And it's, I think, I don't know. It just goes to the whole thing of like this show, like what, what the heck, what, why did you need to have it? If you're going to book it in this 5,000, you know, theater, what was, why, why did they have to do this on a Wednesday? But I'll talk about that in a second. I, I, it was a co-promotional yeah. thing yeah. with E3 for the video yeah. game. I mean, that's yeah. really what it came down to. It was a cool location, you know, it was getting into LA, um, LA, you know, they don't do little things. So I, I, I think it made sense from that standpoint. I do have to say George St. Pierre recently gave an interview where he talked, he actually talked money and he talked about, um, you know, his disclosed pay for like one, one of the events. And it was like, no, I actually got a couple million for that fight. And I was making consistently a few million per fight. And that was never his disclosed payroll. So, or his disclosed, his disclosed paycheck. So I, I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that, the numbers that re- that are released by the ath- the state athletic commissions after these UFC strike force Bellator you know events that they don't necessarily match up to what the fighter actually gets um, you know they also get sponsorship money but you know if you're Connor Hune and you know you're not a big name you're gonna, probably not going to get a ton um, so uh, you know you do have some other money coming in but you know I mean look most of them unless it's the guys at the top most of these guys are not getting rich so. Uh, you know, I would not encourage my kids to go into MMA. I, it's not worth like what you the beating that you take on your body unless you're just like one of those very, very special best ever. Um, it, it's hard to make that money. So, you know, it's yeah, I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that that's not all they got. But I, you know, I don't know. So uh, but, you know, an, an entertaining little event. This is really did feel more like a challenger's card, even though you had some main main guys on there. You know, no, no title fights, though. A couple, you know, one, one of the fights had or one or two of the fights had title implications. The crowd was loud. You know, like I said, I think the intimate setting helped. Noon's hewn was was very entertaining. Tim Kennedy really showcased his toughness and submission skills. He looked primed to establish himself as a star. Cyborg gets a great finish, sets him up as a welterweight contender. Babalu got back in the win column. Uh, very tough night for Lawler. You know, fans would always come back to watch him fight. So he's, he's always going to have a, a place. But, you know, not definitely not a good look for him. Nothing really major happened on the card, but I thought it was a solid event overall. Josh, what did you think? Well, now that I think about it, it was like a really good house show, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. it was entertaining. You had fun. Um, they did make it look better on TV uh, than in real life. Um, in the, in, you know, in the theater, uh, there were, you know, empty seats toward the back. Uh, but the way they made it look on TV, it looked like, there's just a lot of really people. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. wait a minute. So was the cage up on a stage? Like, like, yeah. like, like you're watching like a, a play or something. Yeah. Yes. It was uh, on a stage. I, I went, yeah. you know, real quick. I went, I did PR for a, an MMA event in the Bay area. And it was at like the Fox theater in Petaluma or something like that. And they yeah. did that. They put the, they put the ring or I think it was a ring. No, no, it was a cage. They put it up on the, on a, you know, yeah. Like up on a platform and it was weird. Like it was really weird to watch it like that. So yeah, I, I, I didn't notice that from the camera angles, but 
being the Nokia theater, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it was sort of like a corner of an arena, uh, but they did have the fans on the side. You know, it's like a WWE show, like the hot camera, where there's nobody sitting on the side where the cameras aren't going to go. And so, uh, but they did, instead of filming it from that angle, they filmed it from the you know, kind of the side to make it look like there were people all around. So anyway, it was just sort of interesting to, to see it that way. It felt less sports and athletic like, um, it felt, you know, more like a show, but, um, it was, it was interesting. It was good. I, I was never a big fan of, uh, Babalu. I just think that, um, you know, he just didn't do it for me. His tattoos are great. He had a great neck tattoo. Um, you know, Lawler was not the best Lawler, but KJ Nunes, he did great. You know, always loved watching him. And then we got a little surprise competitive fight with him and, and Connor Hewn. And of course we talked about Tim Kennedy. And I mean, he was at his peak here. I mean, he was just so dominant. And Trevor Prangley was at the end, you know, sort of his best days were behind him, but you know, he really, he, you know, Trevor Prangley was also a really good grappler and wrestler yep. and Kennedy Very just strong. made him look like he wasn't. So, um, I, I, you know, I think those things made, made the show, um, for sure. Um, I don't was, I don't know. Was this show on, was it on showtime? It was, yeah, on, it was, I, it was, yeah. yeah, yeah. It drew, drew less than 200,000. Um, so I guess not a lot of people saw it, but that's cause it's a Wednesday night. Yeah. So Wednesday it was, afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. It was what it was, but yeah, yeah. it's interesting. All right, well, up next on Inside the Hexagon, again, I sit down with K.J. Nunes in what is his first interview since his last fight in 2016. He will not say that he's retired, uh, but it's a fun chat. K.J. opens up about his fights with Nick Diaz as well as their outside-of-the-cage confrontations and then talks about the Conor Hune fight a little bit. So you'll enjoy that. And then after that, we will be covering Strikeforce Fedor versus Verdun. If you've ever wanted to hear me and Josh cry on the air, uh, this, this will be the episode for you because we don't want to talk about it. But both of us were there in person, didn't know each other at that point. And, and so kind of interesting that all these years later, 10 years later, we're doing a podcast together and talking about the event that we were both at in person. But uh, again, neither of us knew the other. So wouldn't have even known if we even talked or anything like that. But it's an action packed card. All four main card bouts end in a finish. John, Josh Thompson's on the card. We get the rematch between Scott Smith and Kung Lee. Chris Cyborg defends her belt against Jan Finney. And then in the main event, Fedor breaks our hearts in a bout with Fabricio Verdun. Uh, again, you want to hear us cry. This may be the episode for that, but it's going to be an interesting one for sure. Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod, and you can reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We will see you soon. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players 
makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast.